Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we are speaking with Ilham Fakro. She's Crisis Group Senior Analyst on the Gulf States, and she's here today to talk us through the implications of the January deal to resolve the long-running Gulf dispute. We're also going to talk about what effect that will have on the interventions by Gulf powers in the Horn of Africa region. Ilham, thanks for coming on our podcast. Thank you. It's great to join you. So there was a deal uh, among the Gulf countries in January where they agreed to sort of resolve this outstanding dispute, which had, you know, led to a boycott of Qatar, among among many other things. This, of course, interests us quite a bit in this region and on this podcast um, on the Horn of Africa, because, of course, the, the power disputes in the Gulf have really spilled over into this region and other regions in the world as well. Um, so, so just tell us exactly what they agreed to in January. So the Gulf region has been split apart for the past three years. Um, the Al-Ala Declaration brings a welcome end to this rift, at least at a formal level. Um, the agreement itself was signed between the six Gulf Cooperation Council states, so between Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman, this is the alliance of the six Gulf states, which has been in place since since 1981. The six states signed the agreement along with Egypt as a seventh signatory, bringing an end to the Gulf crisis. So it's interesting because the agreement itself doesn't mention the rift directly. What it does is vaguely affirm the member states' commitment to achieving the principal goals of the alliance, um, so closer political coordination and economic integration. Without mentioning the rift directly, it did bring an end to the boycott of Qatar by three Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain, as well as Egypt as the, as the kind of seventh signatory. The four countries, the four blockading countries, had cut ties with Qatar in June 2017. They had imposed a land, sea, and air blockade on it, um, which effectively cut off Doha from from its most important trading routes, from the Saudi land border, for example. And in the meantime, countries like Oman and Kuwait had kind of stayed on the sidelines. They had watched this play out. They had tried to mediate in some capacity with with no success. So effectively, this rift basically split the GCC into into at least three components. The UAE-Saudi alliance on the one hand, Qatar on the other, and with Kuwait and Oman playing this kind of neutral intermediary role. In terms of demands, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain had demanded that Qatar meet a list of 13 conditions to restoring relations. This included shuttering state broadcaster Al Jazeera, scaling back cooperation with Iran, and ending support for Sunni Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, which the UAE especially views as a threat. Now, Qatar never met these demands, um, but the declaration did mark the reopening of land and sea borders, the resumption of commercial travel with Qatar, which had been on pause for over three years, and the restoration of of various degrees of diplomatic ties. And in a way, at least at at the surface, brings the GCC back together as as a union of states. And so how should, you know, those of us who are watching from the outside, how should we think of this deal? Is this really a sort of resolution of the underlying dispute? Is this just a sort of tactical truce or, or, or what really is it? Well, it's a formal truce on its surface, right? So on the face of it, uh, things go back to normal. The countries can kind of continue along with the business of, of integration and, and security coordination, uh, as had been the case before the dispute. But what the agreement doesn't do is actually resolve the underlying rift between the countries. Um, It makes no mention of Qatar's foreign policy, which is the main area of discord. That's really the heart of the problem. 
Um, it does nothing to do this. There is no, you know, kind of secondary agreement or consensus on how these countries are going to move forward in their foreign policies or or even undo the kind of rivalries that this has caused abroad. And I think it's useful in this area to kind of go into how the the three Gulf blockading countries view Qatar. So what are their areas of, of disagreement with Doha that led to the blockade in the first place? So if you look at the UAE to begin with, this, its main concern is Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood, for Sunni political Islam, which it views as its its main, you know, kind of ideological rival throughout the region. Um the main focus of UAE foreign policy since the Arab Spring has been to push back against political Islam and the states that support it, so effectively Qatar and Turkey. Um, this has put it at odds with Doha, which is one of, well, if not the biggest supporter of political Islam in the region, along with Turkey. Now, Saudi Arabia has a different set of concerns. It is mainly troubled by Qatar's independent foreign pol- policy and its ties with Iran, which is Saudi Arabia's main regional competitor. If we look at Bahrain, Bahrain follows Saudi Arabia in its foreign policy, but also has long accused Qatar of backing opposition groups inside Bahrain. Uh, Cairo as well had, has its own set of concerns with Doha. It accuses Doha of funding and sheltering members of the Muslim Brotherhood. So if we if we look at this kind of, if we map out the concerns, each of these four states has sort of its own concern with Qatar's uh, foreign policy that, that affects it both regionally and in some cases domestically. Now, of course, our main interest on, on this podcast is is this sort of foreign power competition, which in this region we've seen, especially in Sudan, in Somalia in recent years, um, you know, outside this region in, in Libya, that, that competition has been quite strong in terms of the opposing sides backing uh, opposite sides in the in the actual uh, countries. So so obviously there's a lot of hope in this region. I think that this uh, GCC deal, you know, might sort of lessen or reduce the the destructive elements of this proxy competition. Um, do you think there is much hope for that? Does the if this doesn't do this, does this open up some pathways possibly? Um, and what sort of a timeline might be, we be dealing with? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I mean, the danger isn't really that these countries have different foreign policies or that they even clash. It's it's that they've exported these rivalries abroad in places like Libya and places like Somalia, Sudan. These different Gulf states have all adopted, uh, you know, support for different actors. They've backed different factions, which has intensified uh, the conflicts abroad. It's entrenched them and it's made them harder to resolve. So I think to to some extent, even though the agreement doesn't address foreign policy, the hope is that the restoration of ties in and of itself would at least help restore the mechanism for breaking stalemate between these powers. If they can hold meetings jointly, if they can engage in dialogue, consensus building, things like that, then there is at least a way forward in theory, whereas over the past three years, there really hasn't been because they haven't been talking to each other. So I want to take a a bit of a step back to sort of understand some of the strategic considerations involved. Basically, why the Gulf is, you know, so so interested in the in the Horn um, and beyond the Horn. If you look at a map, it's easy to see why, you know, Saudi Arabia, for instance, considers the Horn of Africa, you know, very important strategically. But why does Qatar and the UAE, for instance, why are they so interested in the Horn? I mean, when you look on a map, you know, they're sitting on the Strait of Hormuz, not not the Red Sea. On the face of it, it may not make sense for these countries to be involved in in conflicts that are much further afield. Um, But I think to understand this, we have to kind of take a step back and look at the Middle East regional security landscape. 
and understand how the competition between the Gulf states fits into this broader regional dynamic and broader regional divisions that go beyond the Gulf states themselves. What's happening now is, is, is we have a division of alliances along three main axes, right? So the first axis of power regionally is this Turkey-Qatar axis, which is basically supportive of Sunni political Islam, so groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. The second axis we have is an Iran-Syria axis. It's Iran projecting its power abroad, supporting proxy groups in places like Yemen, Iraq, and even for the Syrian regime, and in Lebanon, of course. The third axis we have is a UAE-Saudi alliance. It's the traditional kind of heart of Gulf power, which is concerned with various things, but mainly for the UAE, it's about repelling political Islam, and for Saudi Arabia, it's about keeping Iran in check. Now, within this general landscape, the Gulf rivalry fits in as part of a broader pattern of regional competition. If you look at the Gulf states specifically, so like I mentioned, uh, Saudi Arabia is concerned with Iran's regional activities. It doesn't want it to gain a foothold in the region. At the same time, the UAE doesn't want the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar or Turkey to gain a foothold in the region. And this affects their power projection abroad. In Libya, for example, it's about, for the UAE, it's very much about ensuring that it limits the role of of the Muslim Brotherhood, or Qatar, or Turkey in that context. Um, If you look at Sudan, for example, it's the same struggle playing out. It's about the UAE not wanting the Muslim Brotherhood to exert influence in the state, at least to the extent that that it had done so under under Bashir, or at least that was their perceptions. If you look at Somalia again, it's the same set of concerns. Now, if you are a small state and you're kind of situated in this regional security landscape where you feel threatened, where... Your perception is um, that these groups are increasingly gaining power, that your rivals are, 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 are increasing their power around you. And at the same time, where your traditional security guarantor, the United States, is taking a step back, is pivoting to Asia, is no longer providing you with the security guarantees that you, that you feel uh, are essential to your security, then power projection starts to make sense as a core tenant of your foreign policy. And if you're Saudi Arabia, if you feel threatened and encircled by Iran, and if you also share this perception that the U.S. is not going to prioritize your security and may in fact have traded your security. So, so for the Saudis, it's also about the Iran nuclear deal. Um, to them, this enabled Iran to kind of gain this foothold in the region, which needs to be pushed back. Uh, this would explain their growing activism since the Arab Spring as well. For the UAE, it's driven by a sense that it needs to shape the regional landscape in its favor. Um, lest it suffer the kind of the fate of the other Arab regimes that did not survive. So I, I do want to talk about, you know, U.S. policy um, later. If we could just zero in quickly to try to to try to answer, I think, you know, what is often kind of a big question out here, which is, you know, I mean, for instance, uh, Mogadishu, like, why does it really matter in the Gulf if Mogadishu is closer to Abu Dhabi or closer to Doha? So it's it's really about the perception that I mentioned above. It's not necessarily about about Mogadishu. It's about wanting to operate in a neighborhood and shape the regional landscape to your favor. So even though you may not share a border with Mogadishu, you still want it. Uh, You you don't want it to be a hub for groups uh, or actors which you view as a threat. Um, It's partly ideological. If you are the UAE and you're worried about the spread of political Islam, then what happens in Libya or Somalia or Sudan is very much of concern, even if it doesn't take place on your doorstep, because you see this as part of a bigger struggle for power and and a struggle for an ideology that works in your favor. Now, 
often, um, you know, as you've mentioned, I think the Saudis and the Emiratis are often mentioned in the same breath um, when it comes to their foreign policy, especially out here. You know, just how coordinated or not coordinated are their foreign policy actions, you know, in the Horn and elsewhere? Right. So that's a really good question. They are often mentioned in the same breath, but their foreign policy priorities are pretty different. The UAE, like I mentioned, is mainly concerned with pushing back against political Islam and the states that back it. Saudi Arabia's foreign policy priorities are are different. Um, Its main priority is Iran. It's about repelling Iranian influence across the region. Um, Saudi Arabia's main concern is that Iran has been able to gain a foothold in Lebanon um, by supporting Hezbollah in Iraq through its support for militia factions there, and most importantly in Yemen, with which it shares um, an 800-kilometer border through its support for Houthi rebels there. So for Saudi Arabia, its foreign policy is oriented almost exclusively on on pushing back against Iran. But the two countries have come together um, pretty steadily in terms of of acting in a coordinated way um, abroad. Now, that's not necessarily the case in Yemen. Again, there are contradictions in their alliance, right? There are moments where we look at this alliance and we can see where they don't quite see eye to eye. But they've maintained a pretty coordinated front. Um, So even in terms of cutting off diplomatic relations with Doha, that's something that is more of a priority or was more of a priority for the UAE um, because of its clash with Doha over political Islam. Saudi Arabia never really had the same threat perception as the UAE did. But they have done a very good job of acting in a, in a coordinated way and in, in behaving as allies, particularly when it comes to these theaters of conflict further afield. So yes, although there are differences in their, in their foreign policies and certainly differences in their approaches, they have been successful um, in acting jointly in places like Sudan, Somalia, and so on. From our discussions with actors here in the Horn of Africa, and just to discuss, I think, the, the common perception you know, the Gulf is often seen as a major, a very weighty, uh, but not necessarily a very sophisticated actor, uh, fair or unfair. Um, I think the perception is that they, you know, they sort of come in, they throw their weight around, their money around. Oftentimes, that makes a bit of a mess of things. Um, and then, you know, and then later, there starts to be a bit more multilateral engagement uh, with them and, and sort of a tweaking of direction. Um, you know, in Somalia, I think, you know, they, they, there was a lot of backing of different sides, including financially, um, and that's in some ways just led to a lot of division in Sudan, of course. These dynamics partly led to, you know, the June massacre in 2019, um, or at least that's the common perception, I would say, you know, and in Ethiopia, you have the Emiratis, you know, close with both Asmara and Addis Ababa, and now the situation in Ethiopia and Tigray looks, you know, quite quite intractable. Um, so, so how does this all look, though, from the perspective of the Gulf and the Gulf factors? Do they see like all of this quite differently? Just beginning with your initial point on intervention. I mean, interventionism in itself is usually clumsy, right? That's the nature of it. Uh, to me, it's rare to find examples of power projection abroad or or proxy conflicts that are actually helpful to the state that's being affected by it. Usually when a foreign power comes in and it backs one faction against another, that's that's not helpful to the to the country that is uh that is in question and what it often does is it it sidelines popular will. And you know, Gulf intervention is no different in this respect. It it is a destabilizing force. Um, And I think if we look at Sudan in particular, yes, um, the the main role that it's had is weakening the the role of the civilians in the transition um, and pushing it towards the military. 
Now, Gulf actors, from their perspective, would see it as an investment in their security. They would see this intervention as a way of securing friendly ties, um, of making sure that their allies are in power, of opening up potential business opportunities. Even in a, in a more strategic sense, it's about gaining access to ports. The Horn of Africa has been a huge source of agricultural lands for the Gulf states. So from that perspective, an investment, uh, a financial investment of, of several hundred million <laughs> is certainly worth it to them, um, especially if they see themselves through the lens that I mentioned earlier, which is engaged in this kind of broader existential ideological struggle for the future of the region. From that perspective, funneling in money to support those who are friendly to you is more than worth it. Are they concerned when their actions partly, you know, help lead to destabilizing outcomes? Um, Or is it that they just don't see it that way? Or is it that the, you know, destabilization is is, uh, you know, would be unfortunate collateral damage, but but is sort of secondary to their main strategic interests. So the Gulf states would see themselves as actually acting to stabilize these states. In Sudan, for example, they do see the military as more experienced and as a safer bet than their civilian counterparts. It's worth remembering that some of the military leaders that Saudi and the UAE support in Sudan had previously played a role in coordinating Sudan's role in the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. So they are actors that they know, that they trust, that they've worked with before, and they view them as as a greater source of stability than the civilian groups that, by comparison, really don't have the same level of experience in politics. One of the lessons of the Arab Spring to the Gulf countries is that civilian-led transitions can be extremely messy. And and from that perspective, uh, I think they would argue that they're acting to secure stability, but that has obviously meant sidelining the civilians and reflecting popular will won't rank high on their list of priorities there. So, so do you think Gulf actors have learned any lessons from recent, you know, instability in in the Horn of Africa, for instance, in particular, or or is it very much that they that they do think, as you suggest, that all their actions have sort of led to stability, or they just, I assume, blame the other side of the equation for when it when it leads to instability? Has there been much space, you know, in the past few years for uh, reflection, maybe a, a shift in attitude, or maybe an acknowledgement that uh, the, the the power intervention, if not done well, can can lead to you know even worse outcomes, or or that really isn't a conversation that's 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 really happening. The hope is that there have been lessons learned. I think we can see that in some of the UAE's behavior over the past year, uh, and the lesson really is about the limits of intervention and the limits of engagement. The UAE, in particular, has rolled back its involvement in several conflicts, and that may well be because of lessons learned. The ceasefire in Libya has been holding up. Uh, the UAE has reduced its involvement in Yemen drastically. And recently, it has also closed down a military base in Eritrea. This is partly as a result of its drawback in Yemen, but, but it's also important as, as a signaling mechanism to show that it is drawing back. This suggests that the UAE wants to be seen as withdrawing as much as, as, as it is actively withdrawing. Um, its involvement in these conflicts has not been good for its image abroad, the conflict in Yemen has been a huge source of, of kind of bipartisan um, criticism in the United States. And I think part of the UAE's desire to kind of get out of that as soon as possible now is linked as well to, to U.S. perceptions. They haven't been able to shape um, the direction of these conflicts in their favor in all cases. Just It's just learning about the limits of their strategy and the limits of their engagement. I think another factor is, is the pandemic. These countries are under greater financial strain than, than they had been, um, you know, a year or so ago. And that is also forcing a rethink around their priorities. 
the Gulf reconciliation itself also suggests that that there is some desire to avoid exacerbating the competition that we've seen play out over the past few years, and maybe even to quiet that competition in certain theaters. So these are the indications that suggest to me that there may be a desire to at least refocus energies into one or two priority areas rather than seeking influence across the entire region. Um, those are the indications of lessons learned. As part of this landscape, we have seen, I think, quite clearly that Doha's influence across the region has reduced compared to you know several years before, um, partly because of what's what's happened in Khartoum. You know, where do you think that puts us? Are we likely to see renewed uh, power competition uh, because of that or, or, or reduced or just, you know, what, what should we be looking for when we see that? So I think it remains to be seen. And the upcoming elections in Somalia are going to be a good, a good case study of this. Um, there have been indications that intermediaries have spoken to both Doha and the UAE to try to sort of attempt to convince both sides not to get involved um, and not to turn this into another proxy conflict. And I think if elections are able to go ahead there without the two sides backing various candidates um, and turning it into a proxy struggle for influence yet again, then that would be a positive indication of, of what's to come. Um, I think I think we're still in this kind of early phase, um, sort of post-Al-Ala, where things are, 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 are yet to be seen. Um, but the indications are positive and, and Somalia is is a good case study, I think, to, to keep an eye out for. Is that, Have there been lessons learned from, for instance, Sudan, Somalia, as you mentioned, uh, Libya, that, you know, that, that, that could be um, good strategies and, and sort of the basis of more constructive conversation going forward on these issues? That's a great question. Intervention and engagement don't have to be harmful if they are done in the right way, and they can actually play a constructive role. I think the approach has to be one that takes into account the circumstances of the country in question and which really prioritizes the interests of that country ahead of anything else. In Sudan, for example, one of the main challenges following the overthrow of al-Bashir was the country's economic recovery. Sudan's economy was in dire straits, owing in large part to the continued imposition of U.S. sanctions on the new government for crimes committed during Bashir's era. So the Trump administration continued to insist that the new government pay somewhere in the region of $300 million to the victims of the 1998 U.S. bombings in Kenya and Tanzania as a precondition to lifting sanctions, even though the new government had effectively overthrown the old regime that was actually responsible for this. So this was a major obstacle to Sudan's economic recovery. I think had the Gulf states wanted to play a constructive role, it would have been to lobby for the removal of sanctions without conditions. It would have been um, to play a role in debt relief, to provide humanitarian aid or international financial assistance. Instead, the removal of sanctions was tied to normalization, and, and Sudan has now agreed to, to pay the sum demanded by the United States, which is a huge burden on its economy. Um, so to me, focusing on this issue would have been the ideal method of engagement uh, for the Gulf states, one that is very much in the long-term interests of Sudan. One final question, which is, you know, wh- what do you think should be the steps moving forward uh, within the GCC um, to to sort of uh, make, you know, some progress after this January deal um, to begin to sort of uh, reduce some of this, this, this competition abroad, even though, you know, there are all the fault lines and differences that, that you've described. I think the formal declaration between um, the Gulf countries was an important step forward, at least in, in reestablishing ties at this kind of formal diplomatic level. What's lacking is a secondary agreement on their foreign policies. Um, so I think the countries do need to come together at some point and really discuss um, 
whether this can be mitigated uh, and what can be done in the individual theaters uh, abroad where they've projected their, their differences. And do you think there's, you know, do you think the U.S. or anyone else, you know, do you think there are tools they could use to help encourage uh, that to move forward? I think so. So the first agreement was pretty much a result of, of the Trump administration's efforts on this issue. Um, so I think the Biden administration definitely has a role to play in continuing to kind of push the Gulf countries along that path um, towards a deeper reconciliation that takes into account the foreign policies. Ilham, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to join you. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. If you want to learn more about our work or read our reports, you can visit our website at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. This episode was produced, as always, by Mae Francis. Thanks for listening. We will be out with another episode in two weeks' time.